know that we have been on a series from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, subtitled The King and His Kingdom. And I'm speaking on the third of that series uh, with Mike talking about how uh, Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth and the angel appeared to Mary who was then uh, engaged or betrothed to Joseph to tell her that she is going to be with the child and the child is going to be conceived uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let us pray before we uh, continue. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the songs that we have just sung that speaks the truth of the gospel message, that you are the Lord of the universe. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And help us, Father, as we turn to the pages of Scripture, especially now in Matthew chapter 2 from 1 to 12, that this simple story that all of us are so familiar with might speak your truth, penetrating not just our minds but also our hearts. May we hear the message today not as information only, but as a transformational power that is at work within each one of us. Lord, we know that your word does not return void, but rather it is powerful, it is active, it's, it's like two-edged sword. And we pray, Father, as you instruct us today, may we who have ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit has to say to us. In Christ's name, amen, amen. So this is where uh, Mike left off last week, if you were here with us. We were talking about uh, Mary. Uh, He was uh, pregnant, but at that time he was in Nazareth, where the town he and Joseph live. And uh, before we jump into Matthew 2, which Mike just uh, read to us, that they were suddenly appear in Bethlehem, let me give a little bit of that background Uh, that we have the bridge of how they end up in Bethlehem. It's not written in the book of Matthew, but you can find it in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Let us read from verses 1 to 6 eventually. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So just, give us, uh, just to give us some kind of reference of where Nazareth is and where Bethlehem is, I, uh, I got this map, and if you see here, um, Nazareth is up here, and then Bethlehem is down here. This is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, that's the Jordan River, and uh, Bethlehem is very close to where Jerusalem is. So I guess their travel was from up here, Nazareth, and went down to Bethlehem. So I thought, okay, maybe it will help us to give more reference if I Google it and see how do we uh, view it in our modern-day situation today. So again, uh, Nazareth is up there, and Jerusalem is down here, and Bethlehem is here. Now, 
you can do cars now and train and public transportation. So I chose uh, walking, right? Because that would be more, more equivalent to where they were, uh, Joseph and Mary, when they traveled from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And uh, nicely, Google actually gave us that it was 157 kilometers if you're walking that route. You see, there are actually a few routes. There's also another route here uh, that you can take on the west side. But you can't go straight down here. This is probably how Mary and Joseph actually went. The reason is because this is the Palestinian area called the West Bank, and you can't just enter anywhere you want. But there is one entry point right there where you can actually enter on your way down to Bethlehem. So anyway, roughly it's about 33 hours walking. But I'm sure as a pregnant woman, uh, they won't go that fast. They would probably have to stop somewhere, get some water, have some rest. And uh, so it's probably going to take uh, a few days to actually reach from, uh, from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And we were told in verse 6 um, that, and while they were there, once they get to Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. So Jesus, even though he was conceived in Nazareth, was actually born in Bethlehem. Okay, so now that, with that bridge, it now helps us to go into Matthew chapter 2 to actually see what actually um, uh, happened then. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it's very interesting that uh, Matthew, he pointed out that it is Bethlehem of Judea. So uh, just like, you know, there are many cities, uh, there is Athens in Greece, there's also Athens in Ohio, there's also Athens in somewhere else. Uh, Matthew wants us to be sure that you know which particular Bethlehem he's talking about. Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, why? Because there are more than, one uh, more than one Bethlehem. So if you Google it, I, I try to Google this, there are actually two. There's, that's where Nazareth is, right? And then there is Bethlehem of Galilee, which is just not, not that far from where Nazareth is. But that's not the Bethlehem that we're talking about. And why is it significant? Because of what we have read, or Mike read to us, that Bethlehem is where the Messiah is to be born, according to the prophet Micah. We'll, we'll cover that a little bit more. And uh, for the remaining of today's sermon, I would like to focus more on uh, three groupings of uh, people. Uh, Herod. Uh, of course, there are other people besides the three that I, I want to talk about. Of course, there is, the, uh, at that time, a child, Jesus, maybe by that time, no longer in a manger. Uh, he is probably about uh, almost two years old. And uh, there's, of course, his mother. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that character. We're just focusing on these three characters. The first one would be Herod the king. Herod the king. The second one would be a group of people called wise men from the east. Wise men from the east. And then the third group would be the chief priests and scribes of the people, okay? So let's start with who is Herod the king? So Herod is also called the king of the Jews. Uh, he is also called king of Judea. The reason why uh, he was called the king of Judea because he was overseeing an, an area uh, where Judah is. It's called Judea, right? 
Uh, and he became king just a few years before that. His kingship was conferred to him by Caesar. And at that time, as you know, Rome, uh, Roman Empire was advancing and it's conquering many, many uh, territories, including Judah. So Herod is not the king, but he is a king in Judah, which obviously Caesar is, um, is over all, right? So Herod is a king, and he's a king to the Jews. He's a king in Judea. But we also know through history, he's also called Herod the Great. Herod the Great. There are many Herods in scriptures, and if you look carefully, you will, you'll find that they, they have different distinctives. And this one we're, talk, uh, we're talking about in particular is Herod the Great. Why is he called the Great? Because he, uh, was magnif- he, he built magnificent buildings. He built palaces. Uh, he built all the infrastructure in and around Jerusalem and throughout Judea. Uh, and, and one in particular is that he rebuilt the temple, which was desecrated uh, during the invasion. Um, this is the mock-up, so this is not even the real temple, because the real temple actually was ruined, was burned down in AD 70 by Titus. So this is just a mock-up, so if you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually go for a tour uh, to visit this site, although it's, it's not the, the magnificent building that it used to be. You remember how the temple came about to the people of Israel. Uh, some of us are doing what we call the join the journey, and we're currently going through the book of Exodus, uh, uh, one chapter a day. Moses was instructed by God to build the tabernacle in which he and his people will meet, right? So it looks something like this. Uh, it's all temporary because it, it can easily be moved as the Israelites were moving uh, into the promised land. But then uh, fast forward to the time of King David, when King David was conquering and, and was able to gain uh, um, uh, uh, more of a stature of, of the kingdom, he asked God if he can actually build a temple for him. God said no but you can start by preparing some of the raw materials, but your son is the one that will build the temple for me. So the next one, replacing the, the tabernacle, is the more permanent temple, which is uh, what Solomon built. When Solomon finished the work of the temple and dedicated it, it was magnificent. And people look at this temple with awe. But the temple then was uh, desecrated, and uh, it was in ruin, not until the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back and they started to rebuild it. But everyone in Israel was, was very sad because they saw how the attempt to build it even will never be surmounting to anything like what Solomon had built. But that ended when Herod came to power. And Herod actually took the pieces of what the Israelites tried to build and actually renovated it and enlarged it and built the magnificent temple. This is the temple where Jesus actually went to, and he cleansed the temple. This is the temple that, that uh, the scripture talks about. Just so that we understand the, the magnificence of what Herod built, uh, this is the kind of schema of how it looks like. The very left one is actually the tabernacle that's... Uh, just that size, and then the middle one is the Temple of Solomon, and then uh, the temple that Herod built is actually more than four times bigger uh, than what Solomon built. So you can imagine the magnificence of what uh, was there. Uh, 
Unfortunately, as I said, AD 70, it was burned down, and only the west wall now uh, stands. But on the, the Temple Mount now is the, the dome, uh, which is a mosque. And uh, this is the most disputed uh, area in the Holy Land. Uh, if you go for a tour, you can get more history of that. But uh, so Herod's remain is even still there until today. So we know him to be Herod the Great. He built many things. But unfortunately, there is an element of Herod that is not so magnificent. Uh, there was a dark and cruel streak in Herod's character that showed itself increasingly as he grew older. His mental instability, moreover, was fed by the intrigue and deception that went on within his own family. Despite his affection for Marianne, which is one of his wives, he was prone to file an attack of jealousy. His sister Salome made good use of his natural suspicion and poisoned his mind against his wife in order to wreck the union. In the end, Herod murdered Marianne, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother. It's, it's quite a lot of people. He was in great pain and in mental and physical disorder. He altered his will three times and finally disinherited and killed his firstborn Antipater. The slaying shortly before his death of the infants of Bethlehem, so this is uh, the subsequent series that we're going to be talking about, uh, shortly before his death of the infants of Bethlehem was wholly consistent with the disarray into which he had fallen. After an unsuccessful attempt at suicide, finally Herod died. So it's a very sad story. A person who has this magnificent ability, power, uh, but because he was paranoid who is going to take away the throne from him, eventually kill off anybody that will present that danger. So that is the, the Herod that we're talking about. Now, moving on, even though he's Herod the Great, we're not going to focus on him, but we're going to focus on this second group of people called the wise men from the east. The wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So who are these wise men? I think we have celebrated so many Christmas. Maybe if you have become a Christian uh, like me, more than 30 years, you celebrate Christmas year after year, and there's a story of nativity. And somehow, a lot of the things that people said kind of creep into your minds. So how many magi or how many wise men actually came? More than three. More than three. Okay, Ben. You're the accountant or what? You're a accounting firm, so we should trust you, right? Um, how many? The Bible doesn't say. It just says wise men. But perhaps because of the, uh, well, it says wise men uh, instead of just men. Uh, so it should be more than one, right? That's, that we can, we can all agree on. But whether it's two, whether it's three, whether it's four, or whether it's more, we don't know for sure. Uh, but because they presented three gifts later on, we saw that some people that says, oh, well, it must be one person bring one gift. Well, maybe other people didn't bring gifts. So we don't know exactly what it is. Anyway, but that's not the point. So where do they come from? The wise men from the East. And in some translations, it says the Magi. So when we look at that and then we relate back to the Old Testament time, we know that they were wise men. Uh, during the time of Daniel's, for example, in, in the king's court. 
uh, and they were from the east. So this probably, they came perhaps from um, a region uh, beyond the Jordan, way in the east, which is like um, Iraq or Iran even um, to the east. And um, so Matthew, it's interesting, he wants to point out that these wise men from the east are not Jews. They were not part of the Jewish culture. They were, they were not privy to a lot of the uh, prophecies, uh, but they came because they saw a star. And interestingly, Matthew, even though he was writing predominantly the gospel for the Jewish people, he chose the Magi, the non-Jews, at the birth of Christ to show us that God is interested in not just the Jews knowing the Savior, but even beyond the Jewish nation, he has called people to come and see. And when he ends his books in Matthew 28, what did he say? He recorded Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the gospel is not for the Jewish nation alone. Even from its conception, it was intended also for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles. So what it is, is that at the beginning, Matthew says, come and see. The Magi came and see. And then at the end, now that we have experienced who this king is, go and tell. So they came and they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, as I mentioned before, there are many kings around, right? So there's kings in, in Judea, there are kings in other areas, uh, and obviously uh, Caesar is king. Um, but here they are saying very specifically, the, the, uh, he who has been born king of the Jew. Now obviously Herod was not born king of the Jew, right? He only later... He sort of like usurped the kingship. The reason is because he's not fully Jew. His father is actually an Edomite, uh, or Edom, or uh, uh, so Isaac, uh, uh, Isaac has um, two sons. One is called Esau, or Edom, and then the other one is Jacob. So the people of Israel actually came from the line of Jacob. But Edom is actually, or Esau, is actually a different nation. So um, Herod actually came from a non-Jews, from a non-Israelites. He later converted into Judaism and uh, win the favor of the chief priests and, and uh, the scribes, but he was not naturally the king uh, of the Jew. But here it's very interesting that it is not just any king, but born king. Who has been born king? Uh, Nobody has been born king. Oftentimes people were born into a kingship, but not necessarily they will be the king, right? But here it says that a person who is born king of the Jews. Um, and then it says uh, Herod, even though he was Jewish, he just wanted to make sure, so he called the scribes and the teachers of the law and, uh, and the chief priests and asked them to give him reference. So where, is, where, where are these... Uh, uh, what is this guy talking about? 
assembling them together, he inquired of them, so Herod inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Interestingly, though, so he knows some of his Jewish stuff because he knows that maybe he is referring to Christ because he is talking about a person who is born king of the Jews. Right? So he inquired for them, and uh, the, the scribes and the priests then immediately knew because all Jewish people, they know all these different references in their scriptures, especially if they are the teachers of the law. They know everything. They probably memorize a lot of the passages of scriptures. So they told him, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, again, Bethlehem of Judea becomes very important here because that is according to the prophecy that uh, Prophet Micah said. And it's written by the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the ruler of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the passage that was quoted by the chief priests and the scribes were actually from Micah 5, verses 2 and 4 to 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Reminds us again of Matthew 28, to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. The yellow part there is what was omitted in the book of Matthew. But as you can see there, they probably memorized that. Maybe when they just told them, they did not tell them everything, right? But whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a special king. He is not just the king that was born then. He was from the time of eternal past. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So you want to compare notes, right? So, okay, we'll look at the scriptures first. What does it say? Okay, let's ask these wise men. Maybe they are astronomer, astrologer. Let's find out. Let's, let's compare notes. So secretly he asked from them, when, when was it the star actually starting to appear? And then he sent them to Bethlehem because of the information he got from uh, the chief priest. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and kill him. Is more suitable there than worship him, isn't it? Now that we know the nature of who Herod is. So he asked that question, or he made that request to the wise men and asked them, if you found him, please come back and tell me. I want to go and worship him. Now, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So let's stop there. So there's a star moving. So as, as I read the passage, this is what I have in mind, right? So there's a star rising, and this wise man coming from the east, and they saw the star. I presume that the star is not moving, but it's over Jerusalem. So that's why they came to Jerusalem, right? They came to Jerusalem because of the star, 
But only later, after he met Herod and was informed that it's in Bethlehem, the star moved to Bethlehem. That's at least how I read it, okay? Uh, I might be wrong, but that's, that's what uh, I'm getting out of this. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that God, we sang the song, if the nature is the one that is worship him, so will I. God, who is all-powerful, he is the creator of the universe, moving a star is not a difficult thing for him because the moment he opened his mouth, billions of stars are formed, right? Moving a star is not, is not something that uh, God is too difficult for him, right? If he is truly who we say he is. But why is it that he let the star rise in Jerusalem and not in Bethlehem? After all, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why does it have to be in Jerusalem and then move to Bethlehem? It would have saved the, the Magi, the trip. It would have uh, prevented from Herod from knowing all this. But God knows the intricacy of every single thing that should happen the way he wants it to happen. If Herod has not heard about this, then perhaps Mary and Joseph did not need to escape to Egypt, which is the portion of scriptures we're going to be covering in the next part of the series. And, uh, and then it will not fulfill the prophecy where Joseph had another dream, and the, knowing that the Lord asked him to come out of Egypt and to return to Nazareth with Jesus. Out of Egypt, I call my son. That's another prophecy that was fulfilled. So God knows every intricacy, even at the slaying of babies in Bethlehem. He knew all that. Now, for some of us, you know, maybe we become scared when things like, you know, catastrophe events in, in our culture would happen and we'd run for cover or whatever. But God is at work even at very, every single point. And he ordained everything. He ordained even the star to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So here, the star moved from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and stopped above where the child was. And firsthand, it's very interesting for us. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. Matthew could have stopped just at the word rejoice, period. But he said that they rejoiced exceedingly. Well, that's a little bit more than just rejoice. Rejoice exceedingly. He could have just said also rejoice exceedingly with joy. But he has to put the quadruple power in this sentence, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There's something there that we need to think about. Why are these people, why are these magi, the wise men, rejoice exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star and they found the person who was born king of the Jews? What do you think? Okay, here's what I think. So again, I go to my friend, uh, Mr. Google, and then uh, I found out when I Google that perhaps uh, this is where Jerusalem is. Perhaps the civilization at that time, uh, just taking some of the research done by other scholars to say that perhaps these people came from the East and they probably came from the civilization where the Medes and the Persians were. And uh, during that time, this is where the civilization were. This is Ekbatan which is very close to Tehran. It's, it's just a very close uh, vicinity, so it, it's probably in Iran where the Persians were and, uh, and all the civilizations and the kingdom uh, built around that area. So let's say that that's where uh, he was from, they were from. From, from Ekbatan 
to Jerusalem, that's about 1,652 kilometers, okay? And again, I take it on foot because I'm sure that they don't have uh, any fast vehicle to transport them there. So it probably is on uh, camel because they have to go through uh, at least three rivers, the uh, Tigris, the Euphrates, as well as the Jordan River before they actually get to Jerusalem, right? And then the terrain would be um, predominantly desert places. Um, so if you take that uh, 1,600 kilometers and uh, 335 wa- hours of walking, that's uh, probably come to about two, uh, two months of, um, da- of a camel ride, okay? Um, more or less, take, or, take, take, take and give. Can you imagine what they have to go through in the, those two months? So probably by day, it's going to be desert sun. It's going to be hot, uh, stinging. They probably by that time have dried and, and uh, burned skins. And uh, not to, to say that they have to withstand perhaps lots of desert storm where the dust and the, the uh, sand is just going to be blown by the wind and hit them. And maybe at night they have to go through cold weather, uh, desert could be, you know, I, my wife and I would go to Texas quite a bit, and we, that's a tex, Texas is kind of a desert uh, climate. At night, it can be very, very cold, and then in, in the morning, it's like very, very hot. You can imagine how it is, um, that they, what they went through. Not only that, probably in the desert, um, there could be wild animals. Um, so a lot of things that they have to endure, actually, getting to Jerusalem. So why is it that they go out and do all this? So if I ask you, hey, guys, do you want to go for a trip? It's going to be two months. We're going to be on a camel. It's going to be all exciting. Please come. How many people will sign up? We're going to be facing uh, some challenges, but it's going to be all exciting. Maybe we'll see some wild animals along the way. Anybody? You know, this is not something that you just want to sign up for. Uh, I think I have much better things to do. Why am I going, going, right? We don't know. We don't know why they have such a determination to actually go to Jerusalem and discover this person that was born king of the Jews. Maybe God has spoken to him through dreams to them. Because even if you research a little bit, just read through the first two chapters of Matthew. How many times that God spoke to people through dreams? He spoke to Joseph, not to divorce his wife Mary, but take him along. Later on, he's going to speak again to the uh, Magi to ask them not to return through Herod, but to go another way. He again talked to Joseph and and asked him to take uh, his family to go down to Egypt to run away so that the massacre of babies in Bethlehem would not impact Jesus. And then later on, asking them to return to Nazareth. So uh, out, of, out of Egypt, I call my son, and he will be called the Nazarene. So all that is to be fulfillment. But God spoke through dreams. We don't know. Maybe God spoke to them not only through stars, but through dreams. At least something that is convincing enough for them to want to leave their comfort zone, take that treacherous uh, trip to come to Jerusalem and eventually Bethlehem to meet the king. Right? Some of our friends here, um, I have heard stories, not just one, of people who actually come to faith in Jesus through dreams, especially people from close countries, um, 
from Iran, from Afghanistan, that they just have visions of Jesus and what Jesus asked them to do and talk to certain people and then eventually met the king. So God still speaks to us in so many different ways, even today. And God spoke to them, I believe, that give them that faith that is so strong that they would withstand uh, the kind of trips that they were to endure. We are reminded from Jeremiah 29. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But immediately following that verse, it says that, then you will come, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Have you seek God with all your heart? Have you seek God like these three magi, three wise men, seeking God, enduring the hardship, sacrificially, and eventually rejoice exceedingly because they have found the Christ. So I think that is the reason why they have that rejoicing, the quadruple power of being excited that they have finally found the person that they have perhaps told to come see, right? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. Now, they probably came from a different kingdom. And uh, you don't just fall down and worship any other king. They worship their king. If you worship other people's king, your king find out you, are a, you, you committed treason, treason. Right? Because you, you has uh, um, worship and bow down to other king. But here, they bow down to Jesus. Not only bow down, they fell down and worship him. Then opening their treasures, they offered, them, offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this is what we uh, usually celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. Uh, of course, you know, we even sing about this, the, the gifts. But, you know, remembering that the gifts is just the things that we see. The things that we don't see is all the things that they have to go through to actually get there. Now, after that, what happened? And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Again, God speaks through dreams. If he has spoken to them now, perhaps he has also spoken to them then. Uh, so now, what do they have to do? So again, now from Bethlehem, they are not going back to Jerusalem, but they're going to go back to where they came from. That's another 1,600 kilometers of day heat from the sun cold weather in the evening, wild animals, bandits perhaps, especially if you're carrying gold before, and maybe just home-cooked meal. I mean, for two months trip, right, on the desert, they probably came from a pretty wealthy, well-to-do family. They have gold, and uh, they have left something of value before, uh, behind them. Maybe their families. There's a lot of sacrifices that they have to do in coming to see the person born king of the Jews. 
my question to us is this. How have you come to worship the king? What kind of sacrifices have we done? You know, um, some of us, when we come, perhaps even today, uh, we come to worship the king of kings and the lord of lords. But how many of us perhaps felt like, mm, I, I can't wake up early in the morning, too early for me, uh, or maybe there's some riots out in the street, or uh, not even riots, just a gathering of a lot of people, maybe it's inconvenient, maybe the parking is going to be difficult. What is our attitude of our hearts when we come uh, to meet the king? So maybe I'll just close with some of these questions to kind of search our hearts. Yeah? The first one is, have you come to meet the Christ? Perhaps, you know, your friends uh, have told you about him. Perhaps you have a dream about the king, the person born king of the Jews. Perhaps you have seen some things happening in the universe that God is moving. Are you taking that seriously? Are you taking that step of faith to believe that God of the universe desire a relationship with you? Have you come to meet the Christ? If you have, what is your attitude toward Christ? Or maybe the next question, which character in the passage do you identify yourself with the most? Let's just take a look at that, those three characters. So the first one is Herod. So perhaps can you identify yourself with Herod? Maybe you have built great buildings, great businesses. You have so much that you have accomplished. And allowing Christ to take the throne of your life might be like, a scary thing to uh, Herod that he is going to be dethroned. There's too much stake to lose. I, I, I want to continue to be the king of my lives. Or maybe you are like the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, that we know so much of scriptures, we can even quote them, but we're not moved to even come to see the king, to meet him, to worship him, well, you can know all about scriptures, but if you don't have that passionate relationship, knowing who he is, that he is worthy of all the troubles, all of the sacrifices, and all the gifts that we can give him. He is worthy beyond anything else. Or are you like the three wise men or the wise men? I say that again, three, but it's not three, okay? Uh, Erase that from your memory. So the wise men, are you like the wise men? That you would take the pain of um, traveling the distance. Or even before that, that you take whatever that God is sending signals your way, whether through other people. So perhaps they have heard about this. You know that they came from this land where Daniel uh, and some other Israelites were exiled from Judah at certain point. And perhaps they heard about this story, Right? And um, at that time, maybe they, they knew that there was going to be a king of the universe coming. Um, they probably take that to believe and, uh, and then later on confirm with nature, with signs that God performed. Maybe that is happening in your life even right now. Are you taking that seriously and taking that step of faith? And are you willing to make the sacrifices of leaving the comfort zones? We sang earlier also, where the wind is blowing, 
right? That's, that's where it will go. How about if God send us anywhere? Are we willing to go because of the king? I know some of you are here because you're missionaries. You're here because you're a businessman, and therefore, uh, if you are believers of Christ, and if you believe in this king, you are also a missionary wherever he's sending you. But some of you make great sacrifices to come uh, and, and, um, and be here in Indonesia. Uh, but how about the rest of us? Uh, are we willing to make that kind of sacrifices because of he who we believe to be the king? If Jesus is truly your God and king, how have you come to worship him? What is the attitude that you bring? Is inconvenience causing you to delay your worship? Or what is it that's holding you back from having that exceeding abundant joy in your heart to worship the one true king? And finally, what gifts have you brought to the one who is born king? God has given us everything that we have, including the breath that we now have to be alive. He has given us uh, talents. He has given us treasures. He has given us time. How are we using that? How are we giving that back to serve him and his kingdom? Take some time to think through that and check our attitude of our hearts. Have we truly come to know the king? And if we have truly known him, do we have anything that we need to confess? Do we need to um, right the wrong of attitudes? Do we really know who is this king of the Jews, king of the universe? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is so accurate and is so true and is so sharp like two-edged sword. Lord, we know that we fall far, so short of truly giving you the worship that, that is due to you, the honor that is due to you. We recognize, Lord, that we have grown complacent in many areas, that we no longer, we ignore lots of different things. We do not take um, you that is worthy of all the sacrifices and gifts that we can bring to you. Forgive us of that, Lord. And we pray that as your word speak truth into our lives, and it rebukes us, it corrects us, it teaches us. Help us, Lord, to have a renewed mind that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name. Amen.